Our scripture is Daniel 5, 1 through 9. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. He commanded they be brought, and the king, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar, Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Let's pray. Father, we've just sung about how great you are over all the earth, and we praise you, we love you, and we ask that you would feed our hearts, draw us close to yourself, and equip us to do whatever you have in mind for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You, Judy. I tell you, that is fun. Just sitting there and good, sweet worship and hearing you guys sing behind me. It's so good. And read some scripture. On Sundays we worship and we have a good God to worship. It's a weird story. You know, I initially thought I'll preach through all of Daniel 5 uh, this Sunday. I don't think I'm going to get through four verses. Um, this is a crazy, another just like crazy story from the book of Daniel. But while, it's, while it, it is a crazy story, it's starting to sound familiar, isn't it? Like we've been, I think this is our 12th time in Daniel um, over the last few months and and we're starting to see a pattern form. Like, okay, there's something that happens to an arrogant king, and he's brought low, and he's afraid, and 
in a minute, we didn't read it, but Daniel's going to come, come in and interpret. And this time it's not going to be a dream, but it's going to be this mysterious writing. And then, um, you know, there's going to be a difference too in that King Nebuchadnezzar eventually came around to seeing the greatness of Yahweh where, where Belshazzar is never going to get that opportunity. But we're starting to go, man, are all of these stories necessary? Like this is the same thing over and over. And maybe that is exactly the point it always works this way. Arrogance and ignorance will always lead to a fall. This is just 100% of the time. It is good, no matter who you are or what your situation is, to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God so that he can build you up at the right time. And we've been talking about that um, for the past, uh, you know, kind of several weeks. And so, for today, I just want to look at like the, the, what is it that Belshazzar is guilty of here? Because not only is it the same kind of strange, like there's a motif here, I'm starting to see a pattern form, but also maybe even more than the rest of the stories from Daniel, in some ways, this seems very far away. Like, what's going on with this handwriting on the wall? I'm not even going to answer that question today. Maybe next week. But, like, did we get elbow out of this? Or was there an arm? Or is it just of, like, what? In the plaster? Like, on the plaster? In the plaster? Like, this is the kind of thing where you go, well, how am I supposed to even process what is happening here? And, and you know, who is Belshazzar anyway? And especially if you are an ancient Babylonian historian, I'm sure the room's full of them. You kind of go, there's not a lot even written about Belshazzar. Who even is this guy? And uh, always, it is important that we kind of look at the context of the story, and we need to spend some good time today answering some of these contextual questions. This, like, drunken revelry in the king's palace, like, uh, is that even something? I'm ne I've never been invited to drunken revelry in the king's palace. I much less had the opportunity to be the king and throw a drunken revelry party in the, in the palace. And so, you know, let's try to figure out what's going on here. So for us to understand, let's, uh, let's take a look at who Belshazzar is. So this is kind of the order of kings that gets us to our story today. Nebuchadnezzar's our guy. We know Nebuchadnezzar. We've spent 11 weeks talking about Nebuchadnezzar. He's our guy from, from chapters one to four in Daniel. He ruled for something like 34 years. In an ancient uh, kingdom, that is a long time to rule. He ruled for a long time there in Babylon. They don't call him Nebuchadnezzar the Great for nothing. He accomplished a lot, big time conqueror, big time builder, warrior, scholar, uh, you know, city planner, just the, the guy who really put Babylon from here to like the world power. And in the last stretch, we remember that he honored Yahweh as the one true God of heaven. He had his season of being brought low and then recognized. And so we have no reason to doubt that for the last stretch of his life, what we don't know is how long that was. Was that a decade, six months? We don't have a lot of records of that, but we, we just have this story of how uh, a lifetime of arrogance was ended by some real genuine commitment to understanding that his, temp his kingdom was going to be temporary and that the reign of the God of heaven was eternal, which was the point of most of those stories. So he died in something like 562. Oh, mm, dates. So if only there could be maps, that would just be so good. Um, 
So Jerusalem, you remember, fell in 586. So if we could just kind of do some little bit of math here. Daniel has been in Babylon since, call it 600 BC, maybe a little before, maybe a little after. Nebuchadnezzar kind of rises just after that, takes over for his father, the king in Babylon. The first time when Daniel comes over, Nebuchadnezzar might still be like the general under his dad. Nebuchadnezzar takes the takes the throne, 605, something like that. Jerusalem finally falls in 586. Daniel has been in Babylon for a long time, just like 30 years or so. And then Nebuchadnezzar dies. And if this is a great, I don't know if anybody's pregnant, but these are, you know, we love baby names around here. It's a good list. You could... You could little, uh, let's pray for the children's ministry, little Amal Marduk is causing havoc in the nursery. Um, <laughs> so, and you think Amal Marduk is bad. Actually, he gets mentioned in 2 Kings and gets called evil Meriduk, Meriduk. So, like, I don't know how, what kind of guy you have to be for your first name to be evil, but um, maybe that's Dr. Evil. I don't know. Um, he's Nebuchadnezzar's son, and he reigns for only a couple years. He is probably killed. This is more the, the typical kind of swerve of ancient kingdoms. He is killed by the, the company that wants to bring the next king to prominence. Your guess is as good as mine in how to pronounce this stuff. Nera Glasser, sound good to you? Nera Glasser is, is brought to power and he reigns for about four years. And then there is a child king who seriously, how do you pronounce? I, I was practicing last night, never really got there. Uh, we'll go with Laborosarchad. Yeah, yeah. I just want you to consider it as a baby name. Look. When he's bad at the mall and you have to use his full name, there's a lot of power in a name like that. You could really get a kid's attention screaming, you listen to me, Laboro Sarchad. Like you could really do some that. Anyway, I joke. Um, he's a child king. We shouldn't make fun of him. He's just a kid. He only reigns for, <laughs> he only reigns for about nine months. And then Nabonidus takes the throne. And Nabonidus is kind of the historians will look at. He's the guy after Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, he even calls himself Nebuchadnezzar. Like he is the next main great king in Babylon. But he spent the last 10 years of his reign. And so historians will call him the last Babylonian king. And that is because he legitimately is the last Babylonian king. But he spent the last 10 years of his reign out and about on battlefields, doing everything from diplomatic stuff to military operations. So he was away from the capital and he left his son, Belshazzar, in charge as the co-regent, I know, this is riveting, um, in, in Babylon. And so, but we need to know that because do you remember when Belshazzar just said, whoever can interpret this will be the third, ranked third in the kingdom. That's because he wasn't number one. He's number two, but his dad, Nabonidus, is, is out and about um, uh, fighting wars and actually kind of losing wars. So Belshazzar is uh, Nabonidus' son. He's the co-regent. He's the one that stayed in Babylon. And I think this is important as we look at this story because you get a kind of sense of the spot this guy is in. I don't know how to kind of say this, but 
I like Nebuchadnezzar. He is a, he is a terrible human, whatever, but a great general. You know what I mean? And a great king. Like in the world's eyes, this guy conquered the known world, built great works. Like if you're watching the Discovery Channel version of Nebuchadnezzar, he is clearly one of the great leaders in history. And not only that, as God continues to chip away at him and send messengers and send dreams, he eventually gets to the point where he is so humbled that he turns his eyes to heaven. And really some of the most beautiful poetry we've read in the book of Daniel is written by Nebuchadnezzar. I don't like Belshazzar. A little slimier. Not only a little slimier, hasn't really done anything. Like, not only inherited this great kingdom and this great city from his forefathers, starting with Nebuchadnezzar, but really isn't even the guy now. So when we see him like puffed up, when we see him in his arrogance, it is all, I don't know, do you guys use the word front? You know what I'm talking about? That's, that's what we call, it's also being a poser, right? The guy with the surfboard and the jams and the TNC country shirt, but doesn't know how to surf. This is like, Belshazzar has inherited a bunch of stuff, but he has not earned any of it. And there's something so very human about trying to make ourselves out to be more than we actually are. And if you don't like resonate with that, that's because in your arrogance, you have a bunch of front. All of us know what it is like to have our egos challenged a little bit and to kind of puff up. You ever start talking sports with dudes? You know, like I scored four touchdowns my senior year. Really, I scored eight. Oh, I forgot. It was actually 16. Really, I went to the NFL when I was 12 years old. You know what I mean? Like all of a sudden, we just have this inner need to make more of ourselves than we actually are. We've talked about this time and time again. The world will tell you that pride is your biggest asset. The scriptures would tell you it is the thing in between you and the good life. And Belshazzar is, Nebuchadnezzar is full of pride, but from a worldly way you go, I know why this guy's full of pride. Belshazzar is full of pride and you look at it and go, man, you didn't earn any of this. You inherited this. And not only that, if your dad shows up, you might be in trouble. So the state of Babylon, let's, um, let's, let's look at the state of Babylon as the story takes place. As the story takes place, this is actually the last night of the great Neo-Babylonian Empire. By sunrise, the Neo-Babylonian Empire will be conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. Oh, you guys are just like, mm, tell me more about the Medo-Persian Empire. Give me a minute, I will. They're actually at the gate. You remember Belshazzar's dad, Nabonidus. Well, he has actually recently lost a big battle uh, at the Battle of Opus to um, Cyrus, this, uh, this Persian king. And they have marched and they are standing outside of the gates at Babylon. God has been warning the Babylonian kings about this for, and that's why I wanted to show you, it's been a while. It's been year after year after year. This wasn't, it's a pretty good engine. Um, this wasn't like the, the people of Israel just got to Babylon and God's, you know, punishing Babylon for it. No, this has been decade upon decade of God calling them 
to recognize him. Babylon, you're great, but you're more fragile than you think. This reign of yours is temporary. And this Persian king Cyrus, leader of the Medo-Persian kingdom, has been winning battle after battle. He's recently just beaten the Babylonian troops, and now he has marched, and he is at the gate. So Persia has begun a siege of the city of Babylon. They are literally outside the gates of the town, while Belshazzar inside throws this raucous, drunken party. And again, Immediately you go, it's car week, but nobody's storming the gates of Seaside right now, although it feels like it on Fremont last week. (laughs) But don't you see some human stuff here? That the world is falling down, like the world is attacking, and yet in his arrogance, Belshazzar responds to it, not with humility or strategy or wisdom, but with arrogance. Cyrus and his great general Darius are banging at the city gates, and Belshazzar is not worried a bit. Or, or maybe he is. Do you know what it's like? Do you know what? Do you know how? Do you know how worry about the world or, or looking, reading the, the writing on the wall can engender false pride in you? Is that just me? Am I the only one that recognizes this? But he's puffing himself up, ignoring what's going on outside. Man, pride just comes before the fall. That's been a major theme of this book. Let's, let's look at the, the party he's throwing. Most uh, commentators look at this party and they think this is more than just drunken revelry, although it certainly isn't less than drunken revelry. Probably this is a unity building function. This is like a pep rally before a big game. This is, I'm going to get the leaders together and we're going to have a party in defiance of the army that's outside the gates. We're going to talk about how we're going to get out there and get them. We're the strong ones. We're the ones And there's a few things that from Belshazzar's point of view, he goes, hey, guys, they might be at the gates, like the foreign army might be at the gates, but we got stuff we can trust. We're going to be just fine. First of all, we need to trust our resources. Do you guys remember the Euphrates River ran through Babylon? So they can last a while. There's fields in there. They can grow stuff. There's the gardens in there. They've got fresh water. This isn't like normal, a normal siege. They look at it and go, trust our resources, guys. We can do this. And then they say, trust our strength. Remember last week, I actually misspoke. Last week, I told you that the Babylonian walls were so big that a chariot could ride across the top. That's not true. The Babylonian walls were so thick that three chariots could ride across the top side by side. So they look at those walls and they go, what, what's he going to do? We're fine. We've got fresh water. We've got these huge walls. Not only that, but we've talked before about how every battle in the ancient world doesn't just feel like army versus army, but it feels like our gods versus your gods. And Belshazzar, who has different gods than Nebuchadnezzar, 
who feels like his gods have not only conquered, uh, his gods have conquered Nebuchadnezzar's gods, who conquered the gods of all of these foreign people. So guys, don't just trust our brilliant wall. Don't just trust the Euphrates River running through and the fields and orchards we have, but you can trust our gods. So that's what's going on in the story. And again, it's not the Euphrates River that I am tempted to trust. And it's not huge walls, but I can look at my life too and go, eh, I've got the stuff. I'm going to trust my savings account. I'm going to trust my intellect. I'm going to trust my abilities. Guys, pride comes before fall. It just does. That's what's going on. Let's look at at Belshazzar's pep rally. King Belshazzar, <clears throat> even that, you go, King Belshazzar? Can't re okay. Co-regent Belshazzar. Made a great feast for thousands of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. I think the word we would use today to describe this is optics. Isn't that the word we use? Like, hey, look, there might be other things going on, but we, we need to look strong. We need to, we need to make a strong case. We need to, what it means to be a leader is to puff out our chest and say, forget the other guy, we're the best ones. That's not what it means to be a leader. But this is Belshazzar's strategy. Look who the feast is for. The feast is not for his army or anybody. The feast is for the nobility in Babylon. These are the guys that could be a real threat to Belshazzar. He has a problem with Persia outside the gates, but he might have a problem with his nobility inside the gates. He, after all, does not reign um, by himself, but only as a proctor for his father. This pep rally is for them. You know, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but because there's something else I want to focus on. But leadership should never look like a WWE rally. Uh, you know, you know. Shouldn't look like a football game. Shouldn't look like, this is not what leadership looks like. There's no call to pray. There's no sacrifice. Even to his gods, there's no humility. Rather, his style of leadership is just throw a big drunken party. Look what Belshazzar does. He throws a big spread. Like, let's look at the opulence. He lifts a glass. Can't you just see it? There's no sober assessment of the situation. Hey, guys, what do you think? He's not looking for wisdom. There's no strategy or planning. There's no sacrifice. There's no prayer. Just this revelry. This is the kind of party a king throws after the enemy has been defeated, not before. And this is more than just confidence. This is arrogance. This is ignorance. And when you're dealing with ancient kings with a bunch of power, it stands out more. But we are all capable of this kind of arrogance. Let's not be this kind of leader and let's not follow this kind of leader. 
And again, as I say that, I'm never, when I'm talking about what kind of leaders we're, we, we should be, what kind of leaders we should follow, you guys know my take that the problem with the world is not sin in the world. The problem with the world is sin in the church. When I'm talking about the kind of leaders, the kind of people, the kind of character of leaders, I'm talking about church leaders. And as we go along, I want to spend some time highlighting the weakness of Belshazzar because it's valuable that we try to avoid the mistakes that Belshazzar makes. But I also feel like we should draw our attention to the only leader I could really ever follow with my whole heart because Jesus is so different than this. If anyone should be able to lead like this, it would be Jesus. And yet we see Jesus come in humility and service and actual power not puffed up arrogance. This arrogance leads to profanity. You know, when we talk about profanity, well, I'll say that in a minute. The nobles are around. The wine is flowing. Everybody is enjoying a sumptuous meal. Belshazzar gets an idea. Why don't we go into the treasury and grab those golden vessels, those golden cups that were taken from the temple in Judah? Now, you remember when those were taken. Nebuchadnezzar had won a war. He had conquered Judah over in Israel. He had brought all of the golden vessels from the temple, and he had put them in the treasury in Babylon. Now, Belshazzar, years and years later, says, that's what we need to do. We need to go get those golden cups. We need to drink out of those. What's Belshazzar trying to accomplish in using these golden vessels? Well, first of all, he's trying to associate himself with Nebuchadnezzar. He's trying to even show his superiority to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a warrior, um, a great general that became a king. Nebuchadnezzar was a builder. He built the city, the wall, the palace, the gardens. Belshazzar isn't even actually the king now. If his dad were to return, he'd be in trouble. But after he tasted the wine, I don't think the point of this story is that drunkenness makes us stupid, but this is the kind of decision you make after you've tasted the wine. He's a little tipsy or he's fully drunk. And Belshazzar sends for the golden vessels as a show that he is as great as Nebuchadnezzar, the rightful heir to Nebuchadnezzar's greatness. And he wants to assure the gathered crowd that his gods are the best gods. And this seems foolish to me on a couple of levels, but you'll remember that wars, power, might was not just seen as, as people versus people, but as my gods versus your gods. And what better way to demonstrate that our gods are superior than to party with the other nation's sacred objects? I know it's a terrible story to tell, but when I was, you know, uh, I don't know, 19, 20, we used to think it would be funny to take, the, uh, to take the, the security company signs off of people's lawns because they're like, you have security? Well, we've got your sign, you know. Um, it's dumb. It's dumb. It's hilarious, but dumb. Um, and this is sort of what Belshazzar's doing. Oh, great and mighty gods, we're partying with your stuff. I might make the point here that this is nothing like Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah. He brought the golden vessels and stored them in the treasury. Nebuchadnezzar treats Yahweh like a fallen enemy, but with honor. 
There's plenty of pride and he paid for it, but Belshazzar is doing something entirely different. But, so let's, let's spend the rest of our time thinking about what Belshazzar is actually doing. He was taking holy things and making them common. And if I have just one thing for you to take away from this morning, it would be this. You're probably not going to be the king of ancient Babylon thinking about whether or not it's right to take golden vessels that you stole generations before from the temple in Judah and to have a drunken revelry with them. But every day we decide whether or not we're going to treat holy things as common things. Profanity isn't just saying bad words. Profanity is taking what has been set apart for a holy purpose and using it as common, as ordinary. That's why we call abusive language profanity because language was intended for higher things. What, why did God give you vocal folds? God gave you vocal folds so you could praise Him, so you could encourage one another, so you could build each other up, so you could say the words, I forgive you. This is what our, our, our vocal folds, the air coming through our lungs is holy unto the Lord. And when we use it for common purposes, well, this is profane and it's the exact same problem that Belshazzar has instead of using what God has given me I love that song it's your air and our lungs so we're going to use it to praise you like I receive this as a gift and everything is going to be worship the golden vessels were intended for a higher purpose they were set aside for the worship of Yahweh and of course there was nothing inherently special about the objects themselves but these were what the priests in Israel had used in the sacraments of atonement and thanksgiving and repentance and praise. And isn't that what holy means? Something that is set apart for a sacred purpose. These things were holy unto God. And so you might now just ignore me and somewhere in your bulletin, write down in your life what things have been set apart as holy for God. And commit in your heart that those things will not be used for common purposes. What's the application for us today? This side of the cross, could we even commit this sin in Christ? Haven't we done away with holy objects like the temple and whatever? I get a kick out of watching like, uh, I'll get totally suckered into like Discovery Channel, search for the Holy Grail kind of stuff. That's awesome. But the reason it's awesome is because there's no Holy Grail, right? There's, no, there's nothing special about any cup anywhere, any box, any anything. No, this side of the cross, that's not how it works. So what are the holy objects? What is it that is holy and set apart for God? Zechariah 14 is a, another crazy chapter. We're given a glimpse of the day of the Lord. And in this chapter, it's full of war and plagues and all this stuff. And a final victory of God over the other nations and, and other gods. And towards the end of the chapter, we're told that on that day, holy unto the Lord will be written on the bells of the horses and the bulls in the city. Every Thing. Those are the most common thing. Everybody's got a horse and there's a bell on everyone. They can't get more common than the bells on the horses and the bulls in everybody's kitchen. And all of that will be holy unto the Lord. When, when God gets his way, it's not that there will be a few holy things. It will be that everything is holy unto God. We have this idea that like Sunday is holy or maybe even this place is holy, or we 
act differently in different places because this is a holy place? What if we had this idea that everything, that everywhere, watch, this is a very biblical idea. Um, uh, so these golden vessels are like placeholders. Zechariah saw a day where someday everything would be holy unto God. And we're in a now but not yet season. We talk about that a lot. But the New Testament gives us reason to be, begin to view the world that way, at least begin to view our world that way. Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance, your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. What do you do for a living? Is it holy? Colossians says yes. There's no such thing. I don't have a holy job and you have a common job. Are you a Christian? Then your work is holy unto God. So every activity, every PTA meeting, every soccer practice, every, every place I am becomes holy ground. And I have to decide as I walk in here, am I going to treat these people, am I going to treat this place as sacred, or am I going to treat this as common? I understand the phrase, I've used it, I probably will again, but have you heard people say, look, this guy said this, and I said this, and this guy said this, and I left Jesus in the car. I had to like. The New Testament worldview is that we are the holy objects. That it is us that is holy unto the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3.17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy. Got it so far. God seems pretty jealous for his temple. The next line is, and you are the temple. 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. So in one sense, I am the temple. In another sense, we are the temple. Over and over, like I thought, I, I, as I'm doing word searches on this, like I thought that once Paul said, greet each other with a holy kiss, it's like six times in the New Testament. We're supposed to greet each other and know that every greeting between us is holy unto the Lord. Don't try to kiss me, my beard's scratchy. But you get the point. It's holy high fives and handshakes now. But we don't greet each other and think, oh, this is a common thing. This is holy. This is holy unto God. How can I honor God with every interaction? We talk a lot about worship's not just singing songs, but worship is knowing that the whole world is alive with the presence of God and us acting like that. We are the holy vessels. It's God in us. In Christ, we have been set aside for God's purpose. So while it's a weird story with Belshazzar and the gold and the whole thing, we are every bit as capable of saying, man, in my arrogance, in my frustration, in my worry, in my anger, I have ceased to treat what is holy unto God as holy and instead it's common. This 
has to do with, the, with just sin. How do I use my body? How do I use my mouth? What do I let in my ear? It, it, it has to do with relationships, every interaction, every relationship. It has to do with, with church, with how do I view my church body? How do I view my church family? Either it's all common and there's just a few holy things in my life or this is sacred. Let's not treat each other as common. Let's not treat ourselves as common. It's people, it's me and you and everything we do that should be treated as holy. Isn't that how Jesus treated people? Think about Belshazzar and all his puffed upness, all the front, all the arrogance. And now think about that meek and lowly savior of ours who demonstrated true power in conquering the grave. Like he had that, he's God himself. And yet how does he treat every interaction with people? Over and over, Jesus makes it clear like, guys, you guys are so fired up about the Sabbath that you're willing to let this girl who's sick be sick until tomorrow. But I say, she's more important than the day. I'm going to heal her right now. Because he understood that while the Sabbath is important, the interaction, the, the girl in front of him, him, this is where the holiness is. You remember as his disciples come up to him and go, you want us to get rid of these kids? He goes, you think that our gathering here is more important than kids? Let them come to me. Even you say righteousness, you say holiness is about technically not murdering people. I say your violent thoughts even matter. Every thought, heart, business transaction, way you deal with your people working for you, way you deal with people you work for, way you deal with your peers, way you handle your finances. It is all holy ground. Let us not use what is sacred for common purposes. We look at this terrible scene, Belshazzar taking things holy into God and and using them to worship these false and lesser gods. Remember, he, he lifts up the glasses, the, the vessels, and he goes, let's praise our gods of gold and silver and bronze and wood, which are the same things the vessels are made out of, by the way. It's a, he's, just, he's just playing with action figures at this point. He's like, this God is not as good as this God. And we look and go, that's so ridiculous. Those gods can't provide for them. Those gods can't protect them. They're not the real God. And as we trust common things, as we treat ourselves as common, as we treat each other as common, are we not doing the same thing? The things we give ourselves to, the front that we puff ourselves up with, it can't save you. It can't provide for you. God and God alone is your provider, is your protector. Let us not treat ourselves as common. Let us not treat each other as common. Let us not have times in our lives where we think this doesn't matter. It all matters. It is all worship. As we use our mouths, may our mouths, may our tongues be holy unto God. As we use our bodies, may our bodies be holy unto God. As we use our time, as we use, as, as we, you know, struggle with the temptation to worship the cultural idols around us, 
Because the truth is, when we treat each other poorly because of somebody's background or their views or anything about them, when we abuse ourselves with self-destructive behavior, when we worry and fret instead of trust God, when we treat our jobs with contempt, when we are dismissive to our spouses, when we treat our bodies, our time, our energy as anything other than holy, we are getting a sense of what was happening in Belshazzar's party. We are treating what is holy unto God as common. There is a wonderful encouragement in this too. Every moment is a moment to worship. Every moment is a moment to enter into holy space. Belshazzar is going to learn, and you know, I, we, I'm just out of time. I'd love to keep going, but Belshazzar is going to learn very quickly that not only is all of this front and all of this worshiping other gods and all of this like treating what is, what is holy as common, not only are there big consequences to it, but it doesn't work. In all of his front, we'll start here next week, but in all of his front and all of his arrogance and all of his puffed upness, one little thing happens and he just falls apart. But there's a strength to knowing that every moment is holy. There's a strength to God, to you entering into God's presence at every moment of your life that is enduring, that builds a genuine strength in a believer. Every moment is an opportunity to worship. The difficult parts of life aren't to be scorned. They're chances to honor God, to submit to Him. The fun parts of life aren't to be wasted. They are opportunities to praise. Man, have you been viewing your mouth as holy? Have you been viewing your time as holy? Have you been viewing your job as holy? May we not commit the sin of Belshazzar. May we not have possession of holy things like tongues and vocal folds and 24 hours every day and places to live and jobs and treat them like they don't matter, like they're common. But rather, may every moment of our life be tingling with worship. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the gift of 24 hours today and thank you for the gift of jobs and families and relationships and, and all of the things sometimes that seem kind of mundane, kind of seem common. Lord, would you help change our perspective? Would you trans, transform our mind to the point where we have an understanding that nothing we do is apart from you, but rather we have the opportunity to, in word, indeed, to be working uh, with you, for you, and worshiping you every single moment. Lord, that depth of relationship with you and with each other that can only come when we know how important each other are and, and how much all of this stuff matters. Lord, if, we've, if we have 
treated ourselves as common, if we've treated others as common, Lord, we would like to change. So God, would you show us the parts of our life where you would have us understand how important we are and other people too? I love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.